good evening and welcome to the latest edition of Resistance TV. I'm joined this evening by Natalie Strecker, who's an outstanding and inspirational campaigner and activist to discuss a development in occupied Palestine that's affected a friend of the show, Issa Amro. Issa is an internationally renowned advocate for Palestinian human rights and nonviolent resistance against Israel's occupation, and he's been targeted by the Zionist regime for years. The Israeli occupation forces have sealed off Issa's home inside a closed military zone after he'd complained about violent attacks from illegal settlers and intimidation from soldiers. Issa wanted to join us on the show tonight, but his current circumstances prevented him from doing so. He did, however, record this message for us. The Israeli settlers, since a long time, they were asking the Israeli military to close my house in Tel Romeda. They don't want uh, me to talk to international uh, and Israeli audience about the Israeli apartheid and the Israeli occupation. I was targeted in the last uh, 20 years, uh, indicted, convicted in the military court to shut off my voice and to stop uh, youth against settlements from doing non-violence activities. Uh, the Israeli army used all types of uh, tactics and strategies to isolate Yas, to stop Yas, to stop me as well by harassment, by detention, by arrest of the activists, by uh, smear campaigns and damaging our reputation. They got help from the Palestinian Authority as well to stop us from what are we doing. On the other hand, uh, lately we uh, restarted our activities to do non-violence uh, activities and we were preparing to start a global anti-apartheid movement with other uh, local and international partners. Uh, we started uh, since uh, 50, uh, two weeks to uh, help the Palestinian families to pick their olives. We organized an olive harvest campaign, locals, internationals and Israelis joint uh, efforts to help the families and protect them from the Israeli settlers. This kind of uh, non-violence activities, the Israeli settlers didn't like it. So we faced a lot of army uh, oppression, restriction, threats from the soldiers, detention, uh, detaining the activists, detaining Palestinian kids who came to help with the olive harvest campaign. Last week we reached the maximum of the harassment. Me personally, I was attacked by Israeli soldiers, beaten physically by Israeli settlers. They throw stones toward my house, which, which I'm using it as Yas community uh, center. They, uh, they attacked uh, us with sticks. Uh, they, you know, they closed the road to the house and uh, they stole the phone of uh, our media uh, activist Mohannad Kafishi in front of the army without doing anything. We have a lot of videos. We had a lot of videos for them. I went to the police station three times, the Israeli police station, to file complaint. They refused to take the complaint. Then the Israeli settlers came to the land next to my house and start making bonfire, which is illegal. It's a private land. We called the police and the reaction of the Israeli government, Israeli army, Israeli police was to punish the victim of the Israeli settlers and the Israeli soldiers, which, which is typical here because they have the power, they do whatever they want. And this is what happened with us. The Israeli settlers uh, managed to convince the Israeli apartheid army to close only our house in Tel Romeda. So I am now alone in the house. 
uh, I'm, uh, nobody is allowed to visit me, no, no friends, no activists, no journalists, uh, no, no family members. I am the only one in the house. Uh, I am completely isolated. It's as if I am in jail uh, and I really am afraid to leave the house and then they come and take it or they may not let me come back to the house. So I, I'm not leaving the house. I'm staying in until we uh, solve it. The first closure was for 24 hours and the soldiers came one hour ago and told us that the, that the closure is renewed and nobody is allowed uh, to enter. I, I want to start, we, we should start an international and local campaign to make it costly for them. Well, they were chilling words to uh, listen to, uh, Natalie, and uh, particularly so for me, because I know Isra a little, uh, it must be even more difficult for you because I know you've been to uh, Isra's home in Hebron and you, you know quite well. Can you tell us a little bit about the sort of activities that, that ISA has been involved with, in particular the sort of activities that go on at that particular location? Yeah, of course, um, Chris. And yeah, it's incredibly difficult, obviously, um, listening to ISA, understanding what's going on, um, and more widely what's happening within the community itself. You know, I'll always say it's a place I've left my heart, really. Um, I was welcomed um, into the community in, in incredible ways, really, um, their warmth and their hospitality and really treated like a, a member of their families. Um, so um, in terms of Youth Against Settlements, obviously it was set up in um, sort of late 2007. Um, and it's, you know, the, what the centre does is it encourages the youth, young people to take part in non-violence, um, resistance as a means of empowering them. So the ESA um, worked with the community, like I said, especially the youth in terms of how they could resist creatively. One of the things they get taught to do is how to use like cameras to film sort of the crimes that are happening there, which is really important. But they've also taken part in, in other things like they have the Open Shuharda Street campaign every year which obviously is a demand for that sort of sterile area remember that Shuharda Street was really the archery of commerce um, within the old city um, for many years until it was closed during um, after Barak Goldstein's massacre um, at Il Brahimi Mosque which of course was um, enabled by the um, Israeli military forces um, so they have that every single year. It's something that different um, Palestinian solidarity groups take part in all around the world. That's included us um, here in Jersey. In the past, um, when Trump got elected and moved the um, embassy to the US embassy to Jerusalem, they had creative action where they had a big picture of Trump and they were throwing their shoes at it, which you probably know in the Middle East is considered like an yeah. insult. Um, they've done things like the um, they had the Martin Luther King um, themed protest where they wore masks. That's one of the times when Issa got um, obviously arrested. Um, and then they've done things like praying in front of Shuhada um, checkpoint, the um, checkpoint 55, as it's known. So they've done all sorts of creative action. They also go to like um, South Hebron Hills to try and support with, you know, when obviously Palestinians are having their homes demolished in that area. See, so they do a huge amount of stuff, but not just that. There's the social element of the centre as well. It's where the youth come together. I mean, it's where I used to spend almost every evening when I was in Hebron. We'd have a fire. Often food would be cooked. We'd sing songs together. We 
we'd share stories and talk. So there's also that element of that solidarity, you know, along with the empowerment, um, which makes it such an important centre. Um, and Youth Against Settlements is really well known within the Hebron community. It's a centre that internationals regularly visit and stay at um, they'll get lots of I'm um, actually I remember when I was there when I supported a tour of MEPs there and they went and visited um, but lots of different individuals you might even remember that a number of years ago Richard Gear actually the actor went and visited Youth Against Settlement so it really is one of the really important centres of resistance but also of um, solidarity and you know that ability to, to socialise and, and support one another. Why do you think they've targeted ESA so ferociously? I mean, the answer might be pretty obvious, but but just unpack that a little bit more for us in terms of a, you know ESA being particularly singled out in the way in which he has. Well, I think with Issa, I mean, he's obviously very courageous. He's outspoken, and I think the difficulty for um, for Issa, I suppose, um, is also that the Palestinian Authority are also targeting him because obviously Issa is um, resisting Israeli apartheid, but he also speaks very openly about the corruption within the Palestinian Authority, and therefore. I suppose some would say he doesn't do himself any favours in that way. But for Issa, it's about values. It's really important to stand up and call out what's wrong, whether it's on the Israeli side or indeed the Palestinian um, side as, you know, they continue their security arrangements with Israel. And mm. it's really important to understand that, that the Palestinian Authority are able to operate in the way they do and operate in the way they do because they have the full support of Israel. Um, and I think yeah. that a lot of people forget that sometimes. So that's really important. Um, obviously, they target him because he's become very high profile because Issa doesn't back down um, and also because I can't remember where I read it but years ago I remember reading something about how they d Israel doesn't know how to cope with non-violent resistance um, although to be honest they, they really are just as brutal with it now but you know it's easy when somebody is undertaking armed resistance that's very obvious how they, they feel that they can respond to that but when you've got somebody like Issa who's encouraging non-violent resistance it kind of really threatens that narrative that they put out of seeing Palestinians as terrorists I mean regardless Palestinians have the right to undertake armed resistance as they see fit within obviously international law within parameters around that but when it's non-violence it's really difficult for them to use that narrative of being these you know um savage middle easterns which is the racist narrative that israel is obviously you know continues yes no indeed i mean whatever you might be able to say a little bit as well natalie for our viewers who may not be familiar with the arrangement between you know with the palestinian authority um which is run, you know, essentially by, by the Palestinians, but they obviously are collaborating with the Israeli regime. I mean, how did that come to pass? And, you know, why is it that, you know, they are sort of collaborating, it seems, with the, the occupation forces? I mean, you know, the proud, you know, tradition of, of Fatah, Yasser Arafat and so on. I mean, I wonder what he would make of uh, the situation that the Palestinian Authority uh, is, you know, well, you know, the role that they are fulfilling now and, you know, and the circumstances that, you know, Palestinians are having to live under as a, as a consequence of, of that sort of collaboration between the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli occupation force. 
Well, I think, I mean, obviously a lot of this came about after the various peace accords, um, especially when we look at the Oslo peace accords, when, you know, the um, West Bank got carved up into areas A, B and C. Um, the idea under those accords was that they would transfer into Palestinian, um, complete Palestinian authority um, over a period of time once the Palestinians were ready, which in itself is a very racist set of colonialist um, response to to the situation. Um, but obviously that 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 never happened, as we know, but it, it, it was during that time maybe the Palestinian authority gained more control. But in terms of the arrangement, um, you know, uh, basically they can't do anything without Israeli input. And if you look into a lot of the stuff that Abbas has done, which, which is absolutely horrendous, he's totally, you know, he's a dictator himself. Um, but obviously anyone who would be a legitimate leader of the Palestinian people in terms of politically gets imprisoned, you know, um, you know, there's a lot of evidence that, that, that demonstrates that. So um, I think, you know, that, the reason why they continue it because Abbas, although they're living in this hellish situation, he does benefit from it. Maybe it's just—I mean, I don't—I don't know, but possibly I would imagine it's around. Well, what? How can I have the best life within this context? Yeah. How can I exercise more control, exercise power? Because perhaps he doesn't believe there will be actual liberation. I don't know. No, obviously, he's benefiting from the circumstances. So, I mean, it all came about as I said after the accords, but really yeah. the security arrangement they continue is really because they get something from it um, of course and just for the benefits of our uh, of our viewers who may not know who Abbas is just just a little bit about him and I think he he cancelled some elections recently because I actually thought he was going to be uh, ousted Absolutely. as it were just, <laughs> just say a little bit about him and about and about that process about those elections that, that never took place yeah so I mean Obviously, I don't know a huge amount in terms of, the, of you know, all the things around that, um, in terms of the backgrounds, what sort of led to it, other than Abbas is a dictator. And as you said, the likelihood was that he was going to be ousted because I think people have had enough because of the amount of compromises he's made that are really... Um, it makes the situation impossible is actually worse than the situation I would say has prolonged the occupation and apartheid. Um, I mean, Abbas is obviously the leader, the prime minister, I think it is. I always forget whether they're president or prime minister, but anyway, of, of the Palestinian um, people. So, you know, he's the official representative of the Palestinian government, if you like. But, you know, as you said, he's extremely corrupt. Um, he has really given away a lot of rights of the Palestinians. He's tried to suppress um, Palestinian resistance, um, and that has included ISA within yeah. that. And that's the thing, you know, that um, he opposes things like boycott, divest and sanction, or certainly has yeah. used rhetoric that would suggest that. Um, so, yeah, Abbas is no friends, really, of the Palestinian people, which is why, um, I mean, it's caused a huge number of issues I think a lot of people have sort of given up we know there's a recent report that was highlighted in Mondavice that demonstrates how mental health issues really have exploded as, as you would because people talk about PTSD well they they're not in a situation the Palestinians where they can have post-traumatic stress they're suffering trauma every second of every minute 
of every hour of every day. And that's the reality, you know, and this is something that's important to remember. This has been going on for 74 years now. We're talking about a 74 year project of ethnic cleansing, incremental genocide, occupation and apartheid. Yeah. I mean, just so people can get their, their, their head around this, who may not be overly familiar with the situation in in uh, Palestine. Um, would you say that the Palestinian Authority you know, sort of parallels with Vichy France, or is it even worse than that? Because I think people have become more familiar with Vichy France, because mm-hmm. there's a kind of almost a like news blackout, isn't there, about what happens in Palestine, as we, as we know. So yeah. unsurprisingly, people are not really necessarily, you know, as up to speed as you are. Yeah, we're not allowed to talk about the collaborations of, of the Nazi era, not even in Jersey, actually. <laughs> we know we had collaborators, but nobody is allowed to mention yeah, them. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, yeah, I would say probably it, it, it's very similar. Although, I, you know, I'm not saying that Abbas necessarily explicitly supports the um, Israel's vision, but it serves him to... Mm-hmm. Um, have that arrangement with them because he's getting something out of it. So I think it's slightly different in that, you know, during Vichy, it was because they actively support sort of Nazi ideology. I wouldn't say that's the case with Abbas. I mean, obviously, I don't know the guy, um, but I would say it's more a case of actually, what can I get out of this situation? You know, um, and like unfortunately, I said, yeah. unfortunately, Natalie, you know, power corrupts, doesn't it? And uh, exactly, it, can, it can do. Uh, and maybe that's, you know, a case in point with. Abbas, maybe that's you know what's gone wrong. I mean, maybe he was a decent guy one at one time. But what what do you think though? I mean, in just in terms of because I think you know the work that people like Issa and the movement that that he spearheaded, this kind of citizen journalism, which is which has I think turned the table, well, helped to turn the tables in terms of public opinion anyway in relation to you know what the Israeli regime is all about in in reality. Because people are seeing it now, you know, we've got citizen journalists, we've got we've got smartphones. You know, many of them can speak uh, good English now. So you go to the UN schools and things like that, you know. So, and they're able to put this online, so people can see, you know, the 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 grotesque brutality, the racism, the, you know, the the you know the apartheid, the last remaining kind of apartheid uh, state, which you know is actively supported by, by the uh, by the West. Um, I mean. The fact that people are now more more aware of that, um, and that, that's certainly true. I mean, when when the last bombardment took place in, in Gaza, and you know there were demonstrations, marches all over this country and across the world, actually. But I mean, just on my home city, I think I mentioned this before on Resistance TV that it was the biggest um, biggest rally we've ever seen in Derby. I mean, Derby's not necessarily around for big rallies, but it was literally the biggest fight. It was just, it was. It was unbelievable, you know, and people were, were coming out of the shops and there was a march the following week, you know, there were people coming out of the shops and the pubs and applauding and, and joining in in the rally. But with that, though, I mean, the flip side of that is that, you know, people are feeling, you know, sort of, well, very angry, um, but incredibly powerless, really, to to do anything, really. And uh, obviously we've got the the BDS uh, campaign, you know, the Boycott, Divestment and, and Sanctions campaign. Uh, which is something I think you know we should be getting behind and, and supporting. But there's a lot of pressure, isn't there now? I mean, from the government and so on to actually even to actually you know outlaw uh, BDS. Can you can you say a little bit about BDS, its its origins, you know how successful it's been, what support it, it, there is for it in your experience when you've been over in Palestine speaking to to people there, and and what you think about the government's 
you know, possibly the, the possibility of the government actually, you know, outlawing BDS here. I mean, I think to answer that sort of um, in reverse, I would say, you know, the Tory plan to outlaw BDS is criminal. There's no, you know, the reality is people need to decide what they want. If you remove the possibility for non-violent resistance, which is what boycott, divest and sanction movement offers, then you're left with armed resistance, you know, and people need to really, really understand that. It's totally criminal to give a people that are suffering, you know, being subjected to a crime against humanity, which is what apartheid is, that have suffered 74 years, as I said previously, of ethnic cleansing, incremental genocide, everything that settler colonialism brings and that apartheid, you know, it is absolutely criminal to say that they should be living on their knees and dying in silence. Because that's what the Tory policy really, in effect, is 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 saying. So I would say that it's totally criminal. And I would hope that there would be a challenge within the international court around that because, you know, it's a um, justifiable and legitimate nonviolent way of resisting everything that Palestinians are going through. We know it's been used um, successfully at least to some degree during South African apartheid. I mean, it's interesting because you see some of the, you know, with what's happened with Kanye West, um, who did say some anti-Semitic, you know, some pretty shocking things. Um, and yet, look, they immediately remo- uh, started a boycott campaign for Adidas and he he got taken off that, you know. So I think that it's absolutely criminal to say Palestinians need to suck it up and live on their knees. Um, in terms of, you know, what is it? I mean, hopefully it's sort of self-explanatory. It's, it's boycotting and that includes an academic boycott of Israel, boycott for some of set, um, settlement goods. But actually, often it's more than that. It's about not doing, you know, not not taking part in any event, including something like Eurovision that whitewashes um, Israeli crimes against the Palestinian people. Divest is obviously things that you'll probably know, divesting from pension schemes that uh, that would in any way support or enable um, Israeli apartheid to continue. And then obviously there's been some big brands that people have been asked to boycott, things like Caterpillar, HP, Hewlett-Packard, and, you know, all who... Um, some because like um, Soda Stream were were operating out of um, settlements, um, but also Hewlett Packard because the technology is used in Israeli prisons and at checkpoints, and we know it's used in muni- um, munitions as well. Um, Caterpillar because they used to demolish Palestinian homes, which is a war crime. Um, so that's you know the um, the boycott, but also the like the divest um, sanctions generally is more to do with sanctioning Israel in that they can't continue to buy um, arms that they're not allowed and obviously not to continue with the investment that they they receive. You know, um, I mean, there is a lot of debate around whether sanctions are effective or not. I think it's important to remember that because often they do impact, obviously, the civilian population, as we're seeing in in Russia, we've seen in Venezuela and in other places. But certainly there are sanctions that can be brought in that don't do that, like the inability to sell them weapons. Um, In terms of how the community feel about it, I mean, obviously, there's a, a, you know, I think some Palestinians who... um, 
don't really have the headspace, if I'm honest, to, to really have that conversation. They just want, you know, when I, I remember sort of yeah. trying to have a conversation with them and it's not even, they just don't have the headspace to think about that. But overwhelmingly, um, the Palestinian community support that. And it's important to remember it was the Palestinian civil movements that called for boycott, divest and sanction. This is a call directly from them. Some people say, you know, I get quite cross sometimes, even with organisations that, you know, really do support Palestine, when they say, but we can't do BDS, because it might be considered anti-Semitic. And I'm like, okay, you know, what you're saying is, is, as white Europeans, is that we shouldn't be, shouldn't allow ourselves to be directed by Palestinians who are the ones suffering settler colonialism, and how they want us to respond. And I, I don't think that that's um, appropriate, and I don't think it's fair. No, indeed. Well, look, I mean, yeah, I certainly know that the Zionist lobby are more than happy to support uh, boycotts uh, in, you know, defence of, of their own cause. Indeed, I was a victim of that. I was due to speak <laughs> in Brighton uh, three years ago when I was still a member of Parliament about modern monetary theory. Actually, there's nothing to do with the, the Palestinian question, and um, we, I mean, a number of venues were cancelled, but one of the venues that was tried after the first venue was cancelled was the Holiday Inn. Incredibly, Holiday Inn were threatened with a worldwide boycott if they allowed me to speak on their premises. Uh, I mean, and they were prepared to withstand that. I mean, they actually even withstood uh, an online um, abuse if campaign and um, abusive telephone calls. But I think the final, uh, you know, the thing that sort of made them change their mind about hosting the meeting was when uh, two um, Zionist thugs went to the hotel and, 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 and threatened the uh, reception staff. Uh, and yeah. the reception staff felt, felt very frightened, actually, and uh, took time off work because they were so alarmed by why what had happened. So, so there's, you know, there, well, we know the brutality that is beaten out in, in Israel, uh, in uh, by the Israelis, should I say, in in Palestine, Palestine itself. So it's hardly surprising that uh, you know people who, you know, excuse this uh, behaviour and support the Zionist entity, you know, are are prone to those sorts of tactics uh, them themselves. But I mean, you, you know, you talked about anti-Semitism there, and uh, you know how that then is used and weaponized when, well, when when people campaign for. Uh, for BDS and, and and you know people are fearful uh, about uh, being accused of anti-Semitism, but it was uh, Shulama Aloni, who a former Israeli minister, you will know this, uh, but some of our viewers might not, was asked that very question uh, on a on a TV program from about twenty years ago now, and she about anti-Semitism, and uh, she said, "Well, it's a trick. It's a trick that we always use uh, to deflect attention away." From the atrocities, I mean, she didn't. I'm paraphrasing now, but essentially to deflect attention away from the atrocities perpetrated by the uh, Israeli um, regime, um, and, and that's why I think it's important that we we stand up to that, isn't it? I mean, we've seen what happened in you know inside the Labour Party. You know, we've seen Sirkia Starba saying that you know he supports Zionism without qualification. Well, that means essentially he's making allowances for, excuses for the treatment that he said. Has been subjected to, let alone the massacres that, that we're seeing ongoing. Um, I mean, would you agree with that? I mean, what's your thoughts on what I've just said there? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. It is a trick. It's just an attempt to change the subject from, you know, the crimes that Israel is committing against, you know, its indigenous population, you know, the indigenous population of the area. Um, to talking about another form of racism. I mean, and I won't entertain it, as you know, Chris. You know, I think, oh. obviously, real anti-Semitism is abhorrent. There's no question about it. It's of concerning when yeah. we see the rise of the far right, um, you know, internationally. But, you know, we know that some of the biggest anti-Semites, including people like Auburn and Trump, absolutely, you know, support wholeheartedly Israel. And, and the Zionist ideology. I mean, when we look at people like Richard Spencer, Tommy Robinson, um, Katie Hopkins, yeah. all declaring themselves proudly to be Zionist, it's very clear um, what this is about. You know, the, it's a, Zionism is a, thorn, a form of ethnic, you know, superiority. It's ethnic supremacy, you know. Um, and we know that actually not all Jews are Zionists. We know that... Um, Actually, the vast majority or the largest portion of Zionists are, in fact, Christians, you know, a lot mm. evangelical. And not because they care about Jews, but because they want Jesus to come back and either Jews will convert or they'll be destroyed, you know. So it's not because they care about the Jewish oh, yeah. community. Absolutely. So, no, no, um, so I, I think that, yeah, absolutely, you know, there is this weaponization. It's interesting at the moment because obviously you have the IHRA definition, which is a horrendous definition, was never, I mean, Kenneth Stern, who was a chief architect of it, said it was yes. never to be used in the way yeah, that it's being used now. But what's interesting is you're seeing more and more in the Israel lobby violating the IHRA yeah. definition itself by... Constantly replacing the Jewish community with Israel and saying that if you criticize Israel and you're just like, but you're violating the definition which you yeah. demanded was to be adopted. Indeed. So, and that's why, like, in some ways, I'm like, let's not even talk about it. Yeah, say whatever you like. You know, it's a, it's a tactic, but actually don't entertain it anymore. That's my position now, is we don't entertain it. And let's talk about, you know, Palestinians suffering, you know, being murdered, being subject to, you know, war crimes and crimes against humanity every single day. Yeah, indeed. I mean, one of the, one of the um, facets of the, of the Zionist movement is that they're, they're certainly guilty of, of, of overreach, you know, you know, no, nothing is ever enough for them. They always want more. Ironically, I see Sir Keir Starmer has, has been uh, subjected to uh, some attacks from the other side of lobby, which is it's quite a it's quite an irony. But just in terms of uh, going back to to Issa, I mean, I know you know him quite well, uh, uh, Natalie. I mean, how's he bearing up uh, with this? It must be incredible strain. I mean, all his life it's been it's been you know one long struggle. But this this latest development must must be really you know, troubling for him. How's he, how's he bearing up? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, it's been really difficult, um, you know, to listen to him, how he is, you know, he's a human being at the end of the day. And I quite often, you know, say this to people, we tend to put, you know, these great leaders of, of yesteryear on, on pedestals as if they're superheroes with special powers, but the reality is they just, they were just human beings with fears, you know, with flaws, just you know, with an absolute commitment to to justice and and, and whatever their, their struggle was, and that's true of Issa today. You know, he's obviously been recognised or or called the uh, you know the Palestinian Gandhi um, in media and in the past, but ultimately he's a human being trying to struggle in the most impossible of circumstances. So he is struggling at the minute. I think there's no question about it. Um, it's been hard because obviously you know this is. Has been going on. I mean, 
ever since Youth Against Settlements were set up, you know, they've been trying to take over um, the, the house. I, so if I can talk to you maybe a little bit, um, Chris, about what it looks like there. So mm, you have Terra yeah. Romana, which is really important historically. It's an ancient, obviously, area. It's, you know, there's even the tombstone I remember seeing when I was there. Um, but it's, and it's beautiful, you know, it's prime land in the era. They've still got ancient olive groves. So you've got the centre and it's t- totally surrounded on, on one side um, by settlements. And we're talking about the most violent um, settlers that exist. Um, and, you know, so he's constantly, I remember actually the first time I visited in, in 2016, Easter and I have been friends really online, well, through Zoom calls from 2015. Yeah. But I first met him in person in, in, in 2016. And I remember coming out like, you know, set this shouting abuse. But I remember coming out with a bottle of water with um, an associate of mine and a soldier was just standing there with a sniper, a sniper pointing a gun at us. And I was just like, I've got a bottle of water. It was ludicrous. But obviously, um, you know, it's much worse for Palestinians. I, I mean, when I was there, obviously, when I served as a human rights monitor in, in the area, I mean, they were constantly having people attack, settlers throwing stuff, settlers um, shouting out abuse um, and you know, ESA has worked with the youth to and internationals who visited and supported to put like a fence up around the area to try and protect them a little bit. Um, but you also feel like you're caged in, you're imprisoned. And certainly now, because it's under military order, you know, he doesn't feel safe at all. He's by himself. Nobody's allowed to visit him, not even journalists or lawyers or internationals or family members. Nobody is allowed to visit him. And he can't leave because we know as soon as he leaves, the settlers are likely to go in and take the place, which is what they've been planning to do. Um, Terra Mader, actually, that area has been under military, um, has been a closed military zone since 2015. Obviously, they've um, and the property several times has been closed, you know, but they've managed to get it get it reopened. Um, but this time it's looking, you know, it's difficult to know how this is going to play out. I do worry for Issa because I think about how is he getting food in, into the exactly, um, area. Yeah. I was just about to ask you that. Yeah. And that's the thing. And, and, you know, to be by yourself. I mean, that's why it's really important for us to be raising our voices, to raise awareness, because, you know, part of when I had my conversation with Lisa today um, and yesterday, actually, he talked about feeling that they weren't being heard. You know, we know that there's actually, I would say that public sympathy for Palestine has hugely grown in terms of oh, yes. the, or the public in general, that the tide has turned. The problem is the international community aren't doing anything. So although we see a huge rise in the general population supporting the Palestinian rights, this isn't translating into any... Um, actual change or any you know any intervention of any kind we obviously get your you know oh we're sorry or you know to hear these things you know empty statements that we hear from the the UN and and all the rest of it um so I think that it's I mean how long does a people last that degree you know of abuse we're talking about 74 years how many indigenous indigenous populations have survived decades and decades of constant abuse and being regarded as subhuman because that's what Palestinians are regarded as and I think it's really important to understand that so I'm deeply concerned for the community as a whole for their mental and physical well-being 
But I'm also concerned for Issa because Issa's a good friend of mine. I couldn't have asked mm. for a better friend when I when I was out there, to be honest. Well, that's a trait of settler colonialism, isn't it? I mean, we're seeing settler colonialism in real time <laughs> in Palestine. Um, I mean, the United States of America. I mean, well, all the Americas, in fact, are um, are settler colonial states. Australia, you know, is another settler colonial state. It was the you know the European nations that, that went and basically annihilated the indigenous populations, and, and this is what is happening um, in uh, <clears throat> you know in Palestine. And we've got. I mean, these Israelis, I mean, virtually none of them are from the region. I mean, they talk about, you know, the historic kind of right to, the, to their kind of homeland and stretching back allegedly to sort of 2,000 years or so. But they're kind of mainly from the, you know, from Europe and uh, and from uh, the United States of America. You know, the the, the Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi uh, uh, Jewish community. And I mean, it, it's an absolute anathema. I mean, I mean, what on earth? Yeah, how on earth as well, you know, are the, you know, the media not sort of, you know, reporting this accurately? Well, we know. Why, of course. I mean, uh, you know, because you know, the Zionist lobby is, is is a very powerful lobby. But look, I mean, we've got BDS, and you know, and you know, we need to obviously stand up for that and try and support it as as, as best we we can, notwithstanding you know the legal measures that the government are trying to to put through. But it, it, what else do you think? Um, you know, people watching the show this evening can do i mean you know in their trade unions in you know if they're members of political parties i mean uh, in their community organizations i mean other things that they can do there to show their solidarity practically show their solidarity support i would say obviously you have got boycott divest sanction and making the argument for that educating people educating yourself not allowing the palestinian um cause to be forgotten to keep raising it um support palestine action you know, I would say that's a real practical way for those who are brave enough to take part in that. Um, Do you say a little bit more about Palestine Action? Because, I mean, they are really inspirational. I mean, they take indirect action really very seriously and are, and are you know, chasing out um, of, of Britain. Israeli, the Israeli arms uh, manufacturer, Elbit, but they're also targeting others that are involved in, in you know, supplying uh, weapons to the Israeli regime. I mean, I guess a lot of viewers will be familiar, but I mean, just say a little bit about that. And, and I don't know if you know. What people could maybe do to, but if they don't want to or feel, you know, too intimidated to maybe get involved in the direct action themselves, you know, are there other ways in which they could support Palestine action? But just say a little bit about what Palestine action do and, and how people might be able to support them. Yeah, so Palestine Action are a direct action group. I mean, really, I would say they originated in in Manchester, if I remember correctly. I know Huda for a number of years now, and and AD who were sort of really heavily in, involved in that um yeah. and they you know i mean it's it sort of really grew even bigger really after the arms conventions because they quite often got um you know took part in like stop dicey and stuff which is stuff that i've taken part in so trying to stop um arms from being delivered to you know one of the largest international arms conventions that takes place um in london and in other places where they try and obviously sell their weapons um to you know military industrial complex to you know some of the most heinous regimes of the world you know despot nations and people you know nations like israel um so that sort of grew i think what happened was after a while when they realized that um 
you know, things weren't moving forward, the international community, you know, they had made tokenistic statements, but weren't actually doing anything. And I think after, you know, the continued um, sort of violent escalations against the, the you know, civilian population, blockaded civilian occupation of, of Gaza, but also what was happening in, in the West Bank more generally, I think they were, they thought about, well, what can we do? And that's when they decided to start targeting, as you said, Elbit, you know, the, the arms factories and go, right, let's, you know, this is where it starts. Let's do what we can. So they've obviously been occupying sites. They've been, you know, smashing, um, trying to do what they can to smash up part of it to make it so that it's not, it's not financially viable for that um, arms manufacturer to continue to operate out of the UK. Because let's remember, these companies are responsible or enabling war crimes. There's no ifs or buts around it. This is what they're doing, and it's starting. And and and. It, Really, who of us, reasonable person of conscience, you know, would want such a company within our community? We should be pushing them out. So um, they've been targeting them, you know, and obviously they've been successful in that. Some have sort of shut down. Um, you know, obviously they face, you know, they keep going, um, getting arrested and going to court. But what we also know is a lot of the time, actually, Elbit hasn't really been pushing charges or doing no. much. Because what they don't want is for the, um, you know, for the defence to bring into that, you know, court forum or court arena, the, you know, why they're doing it, the reasons, the motivations for it, which would they would be talking about the crimes that have been committed, you know, against humanity. And as we know, Elbit supplies some of the worst regimes as well. That's who their weapons are being sold to. So it's not just about Israel, you know, even like no part of it associated with, with Kashmir. I would say that if people aren't, you know, perhaps feel a little little bit intimidated, and we've all got different responsibilities, you know, it's it's not possible for all of us to go and take part in those type of actions, even if we support them. But there are other other ways we can support, whether it's by sharing what they're doing, whether it's by supporting their legal costs. You know, Ronnie Barkin, who's a good friend of mine, Israeli dissident, yeah. is obviously under house arrest at this very moment in Brighton. Yeah. You know, so you can support him to because he's he's not making a living whilst he's in yeah. the UK. He's not allowed to go anywhere. So these so these are other ways that that we can um support. You know, and I know some people find it difficult and, you know, are worried about what that might um, result in, in terms of putting people off the um, off the uh, struggle. But I disagree. I think, you know, there's all different types of, um, of ways we can resist. And actually, we have an obligation because let's not forget this mess was really started by Britain, by the government of Britain. And I think we have a particular obligation for that reason to take part in that struggle. You know, so I do think that there is that sort of um, obligation there. Um, but, you know, there are different ways, whether it's lobbying parliament, whether it's lobbying our um, political representatives, you know, um, and just make sure that the crimes that are committed against the Palestinian people aren't done in silence, you know, and we yeah. can all take part in that. Absolutely. I mean, what I would say about Palestine action is that they've made more progress. So without wanting to, you know, say anything against the Palestine solidarity movement in this country, but I think they've made more progress in, in you know, practical, tangible results mm -hmm. through their direct action tactics. And that's because the political process has utterly failed. It's utterly failed the Palestinian people. It's utterly failed, you know, people of decent conscience in this country. You know, right across the political spectrum, you know, uh, you know, from Tory to Labour. I mean, you've got um, yeah. Gordon Brown. I think he was the, the first 
British Prime Minister to address the the Knesset. You know, um, it's horrendous. It's horrendous. I'm I mean, sorry. are you are, are you um, optimistic about the future for the Palestinian people? Um, at this moment, I would say no. Um, but we know that things can happen and change very quickly. I mean, I, I would say that we don't have time to tinker around the edges, which is why I support Palestine action. And I would like to see other things. I don't know if you remember Block the Boat that was taking was taking place in different countries around the world where they were trying to stop Israeli goods from being delivered. Yes, know, indeed. I mean, a, a very tangible sort of BDS yeah. tactic, as it were. And uh, I mean, this is where I think the trade unionists, you know, can, can play a part, you know, in, in those kind of key strategic sort of industries, really. Uh, and like you know, to to refuse to handle Israeli goods, absolutely, absolutely. And I definitely think that. I remember. I don't know if you ever watched Ne Passeran about yeah. you know Chile, and that was such a fantastic thing. You know, there well, is stuff you can do. And, and I think trade unions also have become very reserved in this regard mm -hmm. a lot of the time. To be honest, um, and I find that deeply concerning. So I think just, just say a little bit about that 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 that, uh, that movement. Uh, you know, because it was inspiration. Just say a little bit about that. <laughs> And how that and how that you know might translate, you know. Yeah, so obviously, I mean it was a time when unions had more power, but it was obviously yeah. a small group of guys um when they found out obviously about um Pinochet's um regime in Chile, they decided to blacklist, I think it's what you call it, or but yeah. basically they they you know shut shop up said we are not working on these things you know um and on on the this engines, was manufacturing was, goods, wasn't it and yes that's right yeah, yeah. manufacturing yeah. the the engines for the um for the 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 airplanes that were dropping bombs and and all the rest of it so um yeah so they so that's what happened and they never knew whether that you know i think it ended up um in chile the government talking about it there was huge concern around it but actually the guys never knew whether they had succeeded in any way or whether it actually made a difference and what um, became apparent as you watch the documentary is is years later in, a, in their later years they found out that their actions saved eight lives I think it was eight lives but certainly you know a number of lives which was incredible but the thing is is that you know sometimes um, we may not know we may not get to see the fruition you know the the the, the blossoming of of, of of the plants or the seeds that we that, that we've planted but that doesn't mean it it won't happen um, and I think that. I really would encourage anyone who's not watched it to watch it because there's no reason why we can't do similar. I mean, obviously, like I said, the union obviously has lost a lot of its power that it did at that time, but there are still things that can be done. And I would encourage union members to, to really demand their, their unions, to, you know, representatives to be much braver on this issue and, and take a much, you know, um, a greater stance, you know, um, because these have been crimes. And I often say like to people when they say to me, why should I care about Palestine? Why should should we care? And I said, political landscapes change all the time. You know, this is happening to Palestinian people, but who's to say it won't happen to another people, to us in a period of time? Would we not hope that people on the other side of the world would be doing something to try and help us? So I think it's really important to keep these things in mind. I mean, you know, how do I feel about stuff? Like I said, you know, it's really difficult to not give into pessimism, but I also know we don't have the luxury of despair. So we have to keep going. Um, I think when we look at what's sort of happening at the moment, it's a really interesting time in Palestine because we're seeing um, a return or, you know, a growing movement like Lion's Dinner. Um, I think you're going to talk about. Um, yes, yeah, so well, the, the, the armed resistance to the, the Zionist entity um, is making, you know, significant uh, progress it seems to me and 
and I support the armed struggle. I mean, I'm a kind of pacifist. In fact, I actually support the armed struggle because, you know, you say, you know, 70 odd years of, of, of talking and so on has not worked. Uh, and politicians aren't listening. And, you know, we saw the the ability of the resistance uh, last year in Gaza to repel the Israeli occupation forces. So, I mean, this, this is an interesting development in uh, Palestine with, uh, like you mentioned, you know, Lion's Den and you know, the general brigades before that, etc. And so I think, you know, Palestinians are taking it in their own hands to to resist in different ways. Um, I think it's important that we that we offer our support to that. I think it's crucial, in my opinion, that that you know, people interested in politics, you know, have an internationalist perspective. That trade unions have an internationalist perspective. We, we you know we need to move away from a sort of you know myopic sort of view of the world and what's only kind of <laughs> just focusing in Britain. We need to have it seems to me. That internationalist uh, perspective, you know, we have a moral obligation to to do that. But look, um, Natalie, we're almost out of time now, and uh, I just wanted to sort of close the the show this evening um, with a with a really moving song, actually, uh, which I think has been been recorded now, and it may be being released at some point. I, I don't know, um, but it was a song that was performed when you were in um, uh, Hebron. Uh, at Ace's place, I believe, and uh, it's uh, Ace's place, I believe, and um, I think uh, it would be fitting, really, to to conclude uh, the evenings uh, this evening's show uh, by by playing that because fortuitously somebody <laughs> filmed it uh, and put it out on uh, on YouTube, so so we do have access, to it. and you had the privilege, obviously, of being there and sitting between the two musicians. But say a little bit about that because I think the atmosphere really comes through. The words are amazing. It's a beautiful song. But just say a little bit about that night and, and you know, about that song and, and you can sort of introduce it and then, then, we'll, then we'll close the, the show uh, by just playing the song. Fantastic. Okay. Um, so it was an incredible night. Like I said, you know, youth against settlements, you know, the social aspect of the centre was really important. Um, actually, the song is written by a friend of mine who'd come to visit me as I was serving as a human rights monitor in, in Hebron. Um, and he had written it like a few months before and he had met Al Major Mohammed um, just the day before. And then we agreed to meet up at Youth Against Settlements and they just decided to basically, I don't know, you call it jam, is that the term you use? And so what they did was um, Tom played his song um, which is um, called A Spade, A Spade, you know, which was about Israeli apartheid. Um, and he, um, El Major, into that, played, you know, sung one of his songs. You know, obviously it was the first time they had really sat down together and and just decided to, to, to jam together and sing this song together, yeah. which is really powerful. So the um, actual uh, Palestinian song, he's talking about his um, you know, that it's a little boy who gets shot and he's telling um, the person who's speaking to him, the Palestinian who's speaking to him, please tell my mum I'm not afraid to die. So it's it's about, you know, a resistance and it's about a, a young person dying. That's the, the Arabic part of it. Um, but it was an incredible night. We had a fire. There was actually a lot of internationals visiting that evening. So we actually sung Bella Chow as well after that. It was probably one of the most precious evenings um of my period there right so it's well, so, yeah, it's, it's it's an evocative song um uh, and hopefully it will it will in, inspire people thanks everybody for, for watching uh, this evening we'll be back next week at the uh, usual time uh, we uh, thursday this evening but um next week we'll be back at seven o'clock on wednesday but 
Let's play this tune now. Thank you, Natalie, uh, for joining us this evening, and thank everybody for for tuning in as well.
You shout national security We say it is ethnic cleansing How can you be a democracy Well your oppression's never ending You say you believe in Zionism We say it's racist, state-sponsored terrorism We have to be brave enough to see We need justice, we need peace You shout national security We say Side.